Could I get the lights up, please? Awesome. Now I can see everybody's pretty faces. All right, let's go Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Um, if you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, the text will be up on, on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Also, as JB mentioned, uh, there's little Bibles uh, on the racks underneath your seat. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, please take that one home. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Uh, we believe that God uh, will take the reading of his word and magnify it in a way that only he can uh, to exalt himself, to make the gospel clear, and to lead you in a path that is pleasing to him. And like, like just do the math in your head real quick. Like that's a, that's a smart thing to be chasing after. And so if you don't have a Bible of your very own, take that one. I'll call it the best part of my day. Uh, the U.S. is out of the World Cup, but I'm still going to watch soccer today. And then maybe the Cowboys won't let me down. We'll see. All right, so... We have reached December. I don't know if you're aware of that. Were you aware of that? We have reached December. And as a culture, a collective culture, the entire Western world has hit the go button on all things Christmas season. Right? Which means at least a couple of things, a few things are just going to be automatically true this month. One, anybody who's got any sense at all in their head, they're staying as far away as they can from the mall. Right? Two... Hallmark's got 39 brand new made-for-TV movies, complete with two brand new plots, all right? <laughs> Take some of y'all a second to figure that joke out. And three, you cannot walk into a retail store this month without hearing Mariah Carey's lovely ballad, All I Want for Christmas is You. If you, you ever had your doubts about the sheer power, the juggernaut that is Christmas commercialism? Just look at that song. There's no way without Christmas commercialism that that song becomes Mariah Carey's biggest hit. But here we are. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Christmas Thunderdome. If you're not ready for it, it will eat you alive. And I, and I kind of mean that almost literally. Like, like, there's a lot of people who are about to get torn up this month. They're going to get wrecked. Um, I, I'm convinced, I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm personally convinced that a lot of people, a lot of folks will experience this Christmas season in the exact same way that they end up spending just about every Christmas season. They go in with high hopes, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there at all. They're going to come out the other side beat up and cut up and bloody. Now, high hopes for sure. Everybody walks in the door of the Christmas season kind of excited about it. Um, you, you think to yourself, well, man, this will finally be the year, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it done this year. Satisfaction and happiness is mine if I'll just go up and grab it, right? And this will be the year that the family doesn't fight. This will be the year that the presents are finally perfect. This will be the year that the party goes off exactly as I planned it. Or, or am I the only person that plays that game? This will be the year that you finally experience what all those TV Christmas specials have been promising you your entire life, right? Happiness will be yours as the family finally comes together. All your problems are going to get resolved. You'll give a you know, quick nod to, to, to the religious heritage of it all by celebrating a tradition or two and then fade to black as you sip your hot chocolate, kiss under the mistletoe, and everyone sings some copyright-free carols around an heirloom piano, Right? Isn't that how the story normally goes? And so if you know, if you, if you just get a head start on this, 
dig in a little deeper this time. Assert yourself in a few key places. Buy program A's, uh, company A's program instead of company B's program. Then you'll finally get it figured out and you'll finally get over that hump, right? Isn't that what we're sold? Well, a lot of people enter into the Christmas season with really, really high expectations. Man, I'm just my own sitting back and watching. I'm convinced that even more people close out the Christmas season each and every year exhausted and let down. And that's just been the world I've lived in. They get to January and they're wondering why they went to all the effort. And why they tried so hard to fit everything in. And why they racked up the balance on the credit card. And why the traditions never seemed to hit as, as deeply and as nostalgia led them to believe that they would. This is precisely where the Christian celebration of Advent stands diametrically opposed, just wholly different than our modern notions of the Christmas season. Advent means the coming or, or the arrival, right? And we, we talked about that in here before, if you've got any history here. And, and while, the Christian, uh, kind of the, while Christmas in the Western world, I'll say it that way, while Christmas in the Western world kind of is usually marked by everything getting ramped up, you know, one more party, one more dessert, one more present, one more thing that i got to squeeze in, one more thing on the to-do list. While Christmas in the Western world is usually marked by ramping up and ramping up and ramping up, Advent is a tempo change in the opposite direction. It's an intentional act of taking your foot off of the gas. Not as some kind of winter vacation, though. If, you, if you're confused about it, I am absolutely not talking about any kind of you-focused month of self-care. That's not what Advent is. Advent is a stripping away of things that distract us from what it is we actually value. And for the Christian, what we value above every, other, above every other thing is that the infinitely holy God came near. He, he actually showed up. Um, see, when you strip away all the extra stuff, when you get past not only the commercialism stuff that we like to pick at, but even the unfair expectations that we place upon it ourselves, when you actually, uh, what we actually celebrate at Christmas each and every year is the most amazing story, the most massive story that the world has ever actually experienced. It's cosmic. It is infinitely bigger and sweeter and eternity changing than any decoration we could ever try to adorn it with. It's wholly different. Separated from God because of our sin and because of our shame, as those who are rightly owed his good and holy wrath, we are instead, guys, we are instead pursued by his grace. You realize how much of a change that is? How those two things don't live in the same universe? The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He came in humility and he came in vulnerability. He came to live as you and I live, but then die so that we would not have to die. In our place, on our behalf, the baby came to serve as a perfect propitiation between God and man. And if you don't know what that big churchy word means, don't worry. We're going to talk about it a lot this month. You'll get your definition, I promise. Church, the distractions of the Christmas season that are constantly surrounding us, they can only ever end up being distractions if we allow them to. 
They can only ever end up being distractions if we lose sight of how truly massive, how truly earth-shaking, how truly universe-disrupting the real story actually is. And so that's what I want to do for the next few weeks, for the next month. Um, I I might take the occasional pot shot at all the ridiculousness that surrounds us. And let's be honest, the ridiculousness kind of deserves a pot shot or two. But mostly... Mostly, man, I want to hold up the incredible jewel that is the incarnation so that we can see it and savor it. And by seeing and savoring, well, we never get too worked up by the distractions surrounding us. Who cares? Who needs them? Just like we talked about last week with Psalm 115, uh, by seeing God's glory clearly, by seeing it rightly and correctly, we're, we're never too impressed or pulled away by the cheap knockoff gods, right? Like those look, exa- they, those look exactly like what they look like. And just who cares? It's a statue. When you have the real thing, what do you need the statue for? And the, to see and savor well this morning, I, I think we need to look at an Old Testament prophet that probably most everybody in here has limited uh, exposure to. Um, limited exposure to, um, and it's the prophet Micah. Micah is one of the minor prophets, and he's writing in a time period about the, uh, about the same time period as a couple of other prophets that you're definitely more familiar with, Hosea and Isaiah, all right? So those three guys are kind of the sons of thunder uh, during this time period uh, of, of God's people in the Old Testament, Hosea, Isaiah, and Micah. Uh, and so we're talking 700 to 720-ish years uh, before the birth of Jesus. Micah is identified in the first chapter of his book as coming from Judah, all right? and he prophesied during the reigns of three Judean kings, uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, if you're you know, trying to pass the history test later. All right? And so if we're familiar with Isaiah's writings, uh, then the context uh, for for Micah is the exact same. God's people are split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called, see you're good Bible students, I'm so proud of you. All right. Both kingdoms right now are walking in blatant sinfulness. All right. There, there's, there's some good moments and bad moments in Judah, but both kingdoms right now are walking in some pretty not so good times. Right, blatant sinfulness. Both kingdoms are filled right now with people who honor God with their lips, uh, but are far from them, far from Him in their hearts. Both kingdoms have false prophets sitting in their respective king's courts who are promising peace when there is no peace. Both kingdoms are full of people who have sin-calloused hearts that cause them to turn around and abuse the poor and the sojourner in their midst. That's the game playing in both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom at this point in history. Now, if you heard me talk about these kind of two kingdoms before, the main difference I've said is not, uh, the main difference between Israel and Judah is, is not that like, one nation is doing really good and one nation is not doing so good. They're both doing pretty terrible. The main difference between these two nations is that one of them does a slightly better job at repentance once in a while. That ain't north. <laughs> the northern kingdom is just going down and down and down and down and down. While the southern kingdom has, you know, every couple of generations, a, a not-so-bad king and a not-so-bad righteousness. And they plead with God to save them. And God builds them up a little bit. So both kingdoms are deteriorating. Both kingdoms are falling into destruction. One kingdom's just got a slower trajectory. And so it's about the time of Micah's writing 
that we know that the northern kingdom is about to be at an end. It's about to come to an end. God used Micah to prophesy three things I could point out. One, Israel's destruction, the northern kingdom's destruction at the hands of the empire of Assyria. Two, Judah's future destruction. It's not there yet, but it's coming at the hands of another empire, Babylon. But then also three, what God's going to do after that destruction. And Micah, man, I kind of like him. Because he hears the bell, and he comes out swinging haymakers. <laughs> All right? But Mike, Micah's got some words to say. You want to hear some of them? Um, he comes right after the rulers and the false prophets and the evil landowners uh, in, in only the second verse of the book. Like M Micah 1, verse 2. All right? right after he introduces himself, he says this. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you. Micah's coming to fight. Right. In chapter 2, he says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil in their, on, or on their beds. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. But it's chapter 3 where he decides to turn up the volume even more. He says this in verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the houses of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house, a wooded height. Good gosh. If nothing else, we ought to learn this morning that Micah is not scared and refuses to pull a punch. That's not his personality. He goes right after them. Why are we talking about this stuff? Like, I, what does any of this have to do with like Advent and you know, redirecting our hearts to the Prince of Peace? Because it's exactly this context that one of, if maybe even the most famous, messianic prophecy about the coming king of Israel is found. This is the gun that Micah loads before he re gets ready to tell him about Jesus. A coming judgment upon God's people. Not because they let their religious rituals slip through their fingertips. They need to hang on to a tradition or two. No, it's because they disconnected that ritual from a heart that actually loved God. And so in chapter 5, Micah brings this prophecy to what I think is its apex. Look at verse 1. Micah 5, verse 1. He says this, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Let's call a time out there. All right, so the language is ramping up against them uh, more and more and more. And it's ramping up against them even more here. And so the, the warring nations are coming. And so Micah says, hey, get the army ready. Muster the troops, he says. Uh, but, but ultimately, no amount of preparation is actually going to do you a lot of good. You know why? Because they're coming with a rod. They're going to strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So what, what's that about? That's a weird thing to say. Well, think adding insult to the injury. 
Think adding insult to the injury. Uh, it was common practice in, in this time period uh, that when you defeated another nation in battle, you went out of your way to humiliate their king. Kind of a, this is what you get for losing to us kind of deal. And so the picture that we're given here in verse 1 is, is not just the failure of a military battle. They're not, they're not stepping out and having a little fight in the field and they'll come home and have supper the next, you know, after they're done. That's not what's going on here. It's not just that the army is going to lose. And so even though it sounds a lot better, like it would make a really good Christian movie, it's not even that all the evil people are going to you know, get torn down for their sin and all the faithful remnant are going to be left behind going, all right, the bad guys are gone. That's kind of how the game usually works. No, everyone from the top of the country down to the very bottom, they will be undone by this. They will be undone by this. The judgment that God is bringing upon them from the conquering nations surrounding the wall. Church, it will be very, very decisive. It will be very decisive. God's people won't just watch their kingdom fall. They will watch it be taken apart brick by brick and used for sport. It will be a truly dark day. I think it would be naive for us to just fly past that reality as if, as if it doesn't absolutely wreck some people's worldview. Um, there's a prevailing idea. I don't know if you've come across it. I, I definitely have. There's a prevailing idea in a lot of Christian circles that, that God's people are basically immune, basically untouchable by the bad guys in this sin-broken world that we're living in. I don't know if you've ever seen that on Christian TV. And the assumption... The assumption never comes by actual lived experience. Uh, it usually comes with what I think is an oversimplified idea that God, that God loves us and he's big and powerful and so therefore, like do the, the little logic problem, he would never allow such bad things to happen to his people. The fact that lived experience tells a different story is usually treated as a problem that needs to be explained away. Or far worse than that, it's treated as a proof that that person doesn't have enough faith to escape the experience. So they kind of had it coming on themselves. But that's just never the story that God's people actually live through. Certainly not in the Bible. That's, that's not how things play out as slaves in Egypt. That's not how things play out in the wilderness wanderings. That's not uh, the game in the time of the judges or the Babylonian exile or in the persecution of the early church. That's just not what God's people normally experience. There are plenty of faithful and unfaithful people in all of those stories. That logic is an animistic idea that, that's crept in and poured in from things like the prosperity gospel. But that's, that's not how the Bible kind of lays things out for us. That's not the paradigm that the Bible portrays for God's people. So what then is that paradigm, right? What then is the biblical model concerning suffering and sin? What does the Bible have to say about that as his people? And it's this. That God is present before, during, and church, after the dark day. That's what the Bible teaches. That God is present before, during, and after the dark day. And that's exactly the, the paradigm that we see laid out in verse 2. It also happens to be our money verse this week for the, the first week of Advent. Look at it. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Church, I tell you all this all the time. The word but might just be the best word in the Bible. Right? Israel and Judah rightly deserve the holy wrath of God for their sin. Like, there's nothing that they don't deserve other than that. They deserve his wrath for their sin. They have dug the hole deeper and deeper and deeper for generations. Maybe they got a, a, a white light moment for you know, a half a dozen years, but they, can, they go right back to digging. They've dug the hole deeper and deeper and deeper for generations. They have not only embraced their sin, they have found ways to wrap their sin in a spiritualized justification. I'm doing this to please God. That's about as deep a hole as you can get into with God. For your sin. But their sin, as grave as it is, as metastasized as it is, even still, even still, their sin is not the end of the story. Just as Micah points to their coming judgment, he also points to what God is doing both before and beyond their judgment. Go ahead and muster your troops. It's not going to help you much. You You go on ahead, though. Go ahead and get your army together. But this will not be your last chapter. This will not be your last chapter. I am not done writing the story that I put you in. I'm already working now. And when the smoke finally settles, I will finish what I have started. What am I going to do? I'm going to raise up another ruler, a king in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, of ancient days, we're told. And this king will come from tiny, usually overlooked, Bethlehem, Ephratah. Um, You don't usually hear Ephratah attached to Bethlehem, even in the Bible, it only happens a, a few times, six or seven, depending on how you count, uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, some people, some people think that Ephratah is the name for the region that Bethlehem is in, uh, and so that, you know, Bethlehem wouldn't be confused with a different Bethlehem. We got, we got, you know, Nashua's all over the place, and we got uh, Manchester's all over the place in New England, and Concord's, and our Concord's, depending on what state you're from. All right, but here, here's the deal. Some people think it's maybe the region that Bethlehem was in. More people, though, they believe that Ephratah is probably the ancient name for Bethlehem. And that argument holds a whole lot of water because it's typically in the moments where somebody is pointing to how ancient Bethlehem is that they roll that name out. And it's exactly what's going on here. We talked a lot about Bethlehem in our Ruth series a, a few months ago. During Ruth's story, several hundred years before uh, this one is playing out, during Ruth's story, nobody was paying attention to Bethlehem. It's a, it was Podunk. It was a tiny little farming town in the shadow of Jerusalem. Nobody's paying attention to Bethlehem. But by the time we get to Micah, well, some things have happened in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is still small. It's still that farming town. Still overlooked by most people. But now they've got somebody famous from there, King David. The king that in Micah's day, every single faithful person in Judah and Israel 
wished they could get back to. They all wished they could get back to the glory that was King David's time. The king that was promised by God, if you don't remember, to one day have an eternal heir sit upon his throne. That king. Micah points back to what was probably the deepest longing in the hearts and minds of God's people. He says, hey, God hadn't forgotten his promise. You know that thing he told David? He's still working on that. I know everything around you looks pretty dark right now, but God's still good for his end of the deal. Perfect and eternal king is still coming. Yes, there are storm clouds on the horizon. In fact, that storm is actually going to be way bigger than any storm you've ever faced. Get ready for it. It's going to be bad. But after the storm's gone, the sun will rise. There's not a maybe. I've already put everything in place. It's coming. I don't know. Maybe you're thinking to yourself right now, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's great. But, but I mean, we, we've got the whole canon. Like, we, we have the, the luxury of being New Testament readers, and we get to, like, look back on the minor prophets and go, yep, that was totally about Jesus. But would Micah's original audience have actually read it that way? I mean, come on, that's a lot to, that's a big load to bear, Stephen. The answer is absolutely yes. That's exactly what they would have heard. In Matthew 2, if you're not familiar with that Christmas story, when the wise men show up to Herod's palace asking where this new king is at, you know, they see a star in the sky and they follow that star down and they go to the place where you're supposed to find the king, the, the palace. And they're like, hey, hey, where's this new baby boy? We got to see him. We're told in that moment that Herod steps away, he calls all, all the Bible scholars in, he says, all right, I want an answer, boys. Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? They have an answer. They say, oh, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And then they quote Micah 5 to him. Professional Bible readers during Jesus' day go, yeah, yeah, Micah said so. Micah said so. And because Herod is dumb enough to think that he can outsmart God, he then gives the order to slaughter all the baby boys in Bethlehem. I mean, if you set aside the absolute barbarity of that action, even for just a moment, uh, it's enough to condemn Herod all on its own. But if you set that aside for just a moment, uh, like there's no doubt about it that Herod is a monster who's scared to lose his throne to an infant. It's not exactly a secure ruler, right? But even if you ignore that part and just focus on the fact that Herod believes the prophecy and still has the blind audacity to go try to like, cut God off at the pass. He believes the answer they told him and he decides he's going to try to do something about it to prevent it. You think he can prevent it? Herod's not only insecure, he's also dumb. man was completely insane. And just... Like Herod, and just like the scholars in Herod's court, Micah's original audience, they know exactly what they're reading. They know exactly what promise is being extended here. And that's fleshed out even further by what Micah says next in verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock 
rock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So as, as the dark day gets closer and closer and closer, the promise uh, that God makes to his people is not, hey, hey, don't worry because I won't let you experience the dark day. No, his promise is don't worry because I have wonderful plans for you on the other side of that dark day. I'm not going anywhere. And I will be there when you get there. I have wonderful plans for you on the other side of that dark day. You will be given up until the time when the labor pains are over, but labor pains are followed by an explosion of joy. They're temporary. Labor pains must come before the new child. And this child, oh man, he's coming with more than just pedigree. He's coming with far more than just pedigree. He shall stand as the strong shepherd, Micah tells them. Majesty will belong to him. And because of his strength and because of his majesty, his people, we are told, will dwell secure. They will dwell secure. In our culture, we, we tend to have a pretty romantic idea of shepherds, mostly because we don't actually know, know one. All right? uh, our experience with shepherd is limited to kids' Christmas plays. All right? we, we tend to have a romantic idea of shepherds and who they are because, you know, they, they care tenderly for the sheep. And, and they, they gently guide them to still waters and to soft green grass. And, and they make sure that they find a safe place to lay down at night, right? That, that's who we picture when we picture shepherds. All those things about shepherds are definitely true. But it also tends to think of sheep as pets rather than valuable livestock. See the problem there? The main purpose of a shepherd... The main purpose of a shepherd is to protect their investment from threats. They got a lot of money tied up there. Their livelihood is tied up there. Thieves and predators are a problem. I don't know if you've ever noticed this for yourself, but sheep are really, really slow, tasty stacks of meat. Kind of like them. They're not hard to catch. In the world that Mike is living in, there are lions and tigers and bears and wolves and bad guys to worry about. That's a lot of protecting that needs to be done. A whole bunch of protecting. And so there are a few tools that shepherds in their day would have always carried around with them uh, during this time period. Uh, the first one is the one that everybody's familiar with, right? The shepherd's crook. Shepherd's crook. We've all seen those before. There's a fake one in the hallway in the closet because we had a play one time. I can go get it if you want to see it. <laughs> Made out of plastic. It's great. We've all sat under preaching and said, you know, try to paint a... An incredibly lovely picture of what that crook was for, you know. And the sheep would maybe fall into a crevice and the crook was to, to kind of get in there and pull that sheep out so that you could save the sheep. Man, woo, what, what, a, what a sermon that'll preach. But the crook is also a giant stick. You can play defense and offense with a giant stick. In addition to that, Psalm 23 one you're, I'm sure you're familiar with. David calls God a shepherd. And then he goes on, if you, you know, you've got it memorized, he goes on to be, say he's comforted by the fact that this shepherd has his rod and his staff with him. Now, I, I'm not smart enough to know what the difference between those two things are, but apparently the discerning shepherd
in David's day, he chose to carry around both. I don't know what he used the rod for. I got some ideas. Not only that, there's a reason, a very real reason, why David knew his way around a slingshot when Goliath shows up. When Micah, when Micah says that this coming king will be a strong shepherd, he is not in any way, shape, or form talking about his gentleness. That's not what Micah's highlighting in this moment. He's not talking about a tender, pet-like care for the sheep. No, security for the sheep flows out of the character and the competency of their good shepherd. He stands strong, but not just security. Micah takes it one more step forward beyond that in verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. It says this, and he shall be their what? Church, for the follower of Jesus, for the follower of Jesus, Peace is not an abstract concept, and peace is not simply the absence of some kind of conflict. No, perfect peace emanates out of the presence of the strong, perfect, and eternally good king. It belongs to him, and he gives it freely because we are near him. In the same exact way that rightly seeing God's glory causes all the idols around us to lose their luster in the same exact way that rightly seeing the true Christmas story causes all the decorations to fade into the background. Seeing and understanding the presence of Jesus, resting in the presence of Jesus as the strong shepherd for his people, it causes all the threats surrounding us to stop feeling like threats anymore. He's got it. He's not troubled by that. They're not going to harm him, and he'll be around once they're gone. Not as some kind of promise that we'll never have to experience the dark day. But that he is present before and during and after the dark day. That he has wonderful plans for us on the other side of the dark day. Church, as we wade into a Christmas season that... Let's be honest, often gets ramped up and ramped up to a level that's unhelpful and, and even worse than that, it often sometimes even gets ramped up to a level that's unhealthy. As we throw all of the chaos of the Christmas season on top of a world that wasn't working right before we got to December. Like Thanksgiving was a mess too. And so was Halloween. This has been a this has been a problem for a while now. I don't know if you've been paying attention. I mean, all, all the stuff that Edmund Sears saw when he lamented what was going on around him. He wrote, it came upon a midnight clear. All that stuff in the 1800s, mid-1800s, all that stuff is still going on. We may have changed most of the characters, but the plot is still the same. History is just like a Hallmark movie. It's not hard to look around and think that real and lasting peace just isn't on the table for God's people. It's not hard. Open your eyes for half a second. It's not hard to believe that this world is just never going to get there. We have a realistic understanding of how human hearts work, and we have a real and realistic understanding of how hearts work operate when they're separated from God? Like, like you have a theological answer to, to believe that it's just never going to get there. No, what we need is an otherworldly peace. 
We need someone who has not been corrupted by sin to step into this world. Someone who, who doesn't have the same weaknesses and insufficiencies that you and I have. And by God's grace, the very one stepping onto the scene that we get to celebrate this month, <laughs> it's Jesus. The, the antidote for the Christmas season chaos, it's not, to, it's not to hate all the chaos. It's to take your eyes off of the chaos and instead place them squarely upon the Prince of Peace. Let the chaos just do what the chaos wants to do. It can come and go. Who cares? So what do we do with all this stuff? Like, how, how do we put some footsteps to, to, to these realities? Well, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, man, I, I, I think our response probably ought to look like or take the shape of taking our foot off of the gas. Slow down. Like, we're already having to tell people we can't do B because we're already committed to A. Are you in the same boat? Slow down. I don't know how much you throw yourself at all the extra stuff surrounding this season. In fact, I don't think there's one right answer. Everybody's got different plates. Decoration around this season. They're, they're incredible gifts meant to adorn this season. It's our attempt to try and turn decorations into the star of the show, where we usually end up turning them into something gaudy and unhelpful. Anytime you try to turn a decoration into the attraction, you've made a mockery of both. The question that you ultimately answer, have to answer is this. Do these things in front of me, do they help me more deeply love Jesus and what he came to do, or do they distract me from all that? If you answer that question honestly, you'll never have to worry about the how much is too much question. It'll settle itself. It'll settle itself. Said you'll pick up and put down tools whenever it is expedient to do so for your greater cause. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time that we set aside each week to to give you space to, to translate your response from heart thing into to action thing. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? How can, how can you respond? And the answer is simple, by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that all people by default are separated relationally from God because of our sin and that we are owed the right and just punishment for our sin. To stand and try to face the wrath of God for your sin on that dark day without an advocate, it's not a smart move. It's not a smart move at all. But while the Bible teaches that we are rightly owed wrath for our sin, it also teaches that it is while we were still sinners that Christ died for the ungodly. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that, that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on a Roman cross in your place to make full and final payment, propitiation for your sin. He rose again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. I'd love to be helpful to you. Let's talk. I'll be down front. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's by formally joining our church family. Or maybe that's by 
finally being obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. Or maybe it's by uh, publicly saying yes to the call he's placing on your life to take the gospel somewhere far away from here. I don't know, but I'd love to be helpful to you in those regards too. Let's talk. Whoever you are, and however God's word is calling you to respond today, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for a prophet named Micah who comes storming out of the gate to tell us all the problems that are, that are wrong. Just like Israel and Judah, we see it in our own culture. We may cling to some rituals here and there, but we walked away from the heart behind them a long time ago. Just like in Israel and Judah, we've got prophets in the king's court who say peace when there is no peace. God, you have not promised that the remnant will avoid the dark day. But you have promised to be there and to be near and to walk with us and to carry us through and establish us afterwards. I don't know what you have in store for our own nation. I know we're not Israel or Judah. We have different promises and different expectations Frankly, I don't want what you had to give to them. But I do want you. So if that's what it'll take to get you, sign me up. Thank you for giving us a reminder at the beginning of this Christmas season that peace doesn't have to be hammered out. It doesn't have to be chased down. It has to be rested in. Show your nearness to us. Maybe strip away a distraction or two so we're, not, so we're not pulled away. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.